Good morning, friends. My name is Pastor Milo. We're so glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, we are in a series called Awakening here uh, in the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to get your Bibles out, make your way to Nehemiah. Uh, if you are using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, we're on page 505. If you are not using that Black Bible in front of you, you probably won't be on the right page. On mine, we're on 401. So find your way there, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, page 505, New International Version, what we're in today. About two years ago, we had a team uh, from here as a church. A lot of times when there's a natural disaster, we try to send help and respond to the need. And so we went, uh, I was part of the team that went to Baton Rouge for flooding two years ago. We had a team that went last year to Houston. And uh, keep your eyes and ears open. Uh, we anticipate uh, at least uh, sending some type of team uh, or, or connecting with another church to be able to send some guys down uh, to be able to work here in uh, what's going on in the Carolinas and such right now. But when we went down there to Baton Rouge. Uh, I got to meet a man named Sadi, uh, and uh, he was there, and he was working in a house uh, with us, and he had come to, the, to his aunt's house and was working there. Uh, but he told us his story as he tried to come and help uh, there in Baton Rouge. He was going along Interstate 10, I believe it was, and uh, the traffic was stopped, and it got late at night, and the water was coming in, and traffic was stopped, and they were on uh, this part of the interstate where the, uh, the, the gravel had been put in and had gone out across the water. And so what is happening as they are stuck there in traffic, water is starting to rise up around them. And there they are, out in the middle of nowhere. Traffic is not moving, nowhere to go on this dike. And as he's there, he climbs onto the top of his minivan because the water is coming in. And he said, as the water comes in and the water goes over the headlights of the vehicles around him and different things like that, it got very, very dark. And as it gets very, very dark, because there's no uh, natural light uh, coming that night, the storm was, is kind of raging. He said it wasn't raining on top of him, but it was just a dark night. And just the darkness seemed like it was closing in. And he spent the night, that night, on the road, sitting on top of his van, hoping that the waves, that the water would not come to a point that would start to float his vehicle off into the marsh. That's a pretty scary a moment to be in. Has, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation like that. I've never experienced flooding in that way. That's a very terrifying uh, idea of, of what he went through, the ordeal that he went through. And he was simply coming and trying to take his aunt out of her home and get her to higher ground. And so uh, when we met him, he was there with us uh, cleaning the house out and his aunt had gotten out and uh, we were there working and serving with him. In many ways, as the darkness closes in around him in that illustration, as, as danger is getting closer and closer, if you look at the headlines of the last, this is the last 48 hours, it would feel very much like the darkness is closing in all around us. Uh, here's the very physical one. Flooding is sending unheard amounts of water through the Carolinas. That was on Thursday, the 21st. Uh, a father and son accused of killing their neighbor over a dispute about a box spring mattress. That was on Friday, the 22nd. Uh, this is in California. A doctor and a girlfriend may have raped hundreds. That was on the 22nd. Uh, the story you may have heard of infants were stabbed at a daycare. Uh, New Jersey sheriff steps down after uproar over his racist remarks. That was on Friday as well. The darkness at times feels like it's closing in around us. And what are we supposed to do? 
as we get into this sermon series, we're week three now in this Nehemiah sermon series, and, and we've talked about and seen the way that he is looking out and seeing the darkness closing in around him. And in putting it in a couple of words, he sees broken walls and broken hearts. And the way that God is going to work through him and through his life is to start to repair and mend those things. The thing is with broken walls, uh, there's the physical nature. We can sometimes respond in a hurricane and, and deal with some real physical things and see how we can help in that way and help people clean out their houses and get the trash to their street and try to help them reset things. That's a very physical response. But other times there's stuff that's going on that's internal and emotional and, and there's a spiritual battle going on that isn't so visible. It's much harder to see. And there's the repairing and mending of broken hearts. So if you've got that white sheet of paper this morning, it was in your bulletin, we're going to start out with this statement or this question, if you will. When we see broken walls and broken hearts from injustice and the darkness that is in the world, how are we to respond? When we see broken walls and broken hearts due to the injustice and darkness that seems to be closing in around us, what are we supposed to do? How should we respond. If you're there in Nehemiah, just a couple pages earlier, we hear and read the story of Ezra. Ezra is uh, there in the same area of Jerusalem just before Nehemiah comes to the scene, and he has spent much of his time there repairing broken hearts, dealing with the spiritual matters and the spiritual issues, and, and in many ways paving the road for what we now read of Nehemiah. But in Ezra, chapter 10, verse 4, this is not Ezra speaking. This is the men. This is the people of the city that he has been trying to reach. And they respond to Ezra's pleading with them to say, we need to make a change. We need to do something. We have to fix this problem. They say to him, rise up, take courage, and do it. Rise up, take courage, and do it. Again, this is Ezra, the predecessor for Nehemiah. And so much of what we see in Nehemiah follows the same pattern. Rise up, take courage, and do it. This morning the question was asked about the favorite movie that you've seen, maybe recently or, or different things like that. An illustration I want to use this morning comes from a movie that Matt Damon is in. It's called We Bought a Zoo. Anyone familiar with this movie? It's a great movie. And one of the, the my favorite things, in here, he's dealing with a teenage son. His wife has passed away and his son is kind of in the, the middle of just kind of lostness of being a teenager and needing his mom to help him through some of the girl issues that he's dealing with. And Matt Damon sits down with him and his character is Benjamin Mee. And he sits down with him and he says, son, let me just tell you something. There's some things in life that you just need 20 seconds of courage the way he says it is this, you know something, sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Just literally 20 seconds of absolute embarrassing bravery. And I promise you, something great will come out of it. He's telling his son this, and if you've seen the movie, it's about a true story. In many ways, Matt Damon's character also has 20 seconds of sheer bravery, and then we'll see what comes out of it. As we have followed our way along in chapter 2, Nehemiah has his own 20 seconds of insane courage. 
He's prayed up, and we've talked about this in this series. He has prayed for four months for this moment, and now the moment is here. He's just your regular old Joe, just a normal guy, run-of-the-mill cupbearer to the king. You understand what the cupbearer to the king's job is? It's to die so that the king doesn't die when you drink the food or eat the poison or whatever. Drink the food, eat the poison. Yeah, that's right. That's the cupbearer's job. So he's just a regular guy. There's nothing special about him. And he demonstrates, in many ways, this 20 seconds of absolutely insane courage. Turn there for just a second. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. We dealt with this last week, but he says this, uh, verse 2. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, King, may you live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? At this point, his heart is beating out of his chest. Two, three, four. There's about five seconds. Six, seven, eight. Maybe the king waited. Nine, ten, eleven. Then the king said to me, what is it that you want? Eleven, twelve. 13, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And as you have followed along in this series, if you have worked your way through this chapter, he even asks for more than that. He says, also resource me while I go. I need to spend some of your money to fix my city. Talk about 20 seconds of insane, brave courage. So how do we get there this morning? If we're going to look out and see darkness and feel like the darkness is closing in around us, we see injustice around us, we see these wrong things, it's going to take a few feeble steps forward. Absolute bravery for a moment. So here's your first fill-in for you this morning. If we're going to rise up, take courage and do it, as Ezra says, a courageous soul investigates what's wrong. A courageous soul investigates what's wrong. Let me illustrate this before we dive into the text. In the winter of 1940 and 1941, raise your hand if you were around in 1940 and 1941. There's a a couple. I mean, I'm not making this. Okay, yeah, there's a few. 1940, 1941. I I don't remember this moment, but here we go. Ready? Before... (laughs) Before Pearl Harbor brought America in what would become World War II, mail arrived on the desk of a United States senator detailing the waste and profiteering at a new military camp going up in this senator's home state. Anyone know who that senator's name was? Harry Truman. In the first few months he had been in office, Truman was given the best advice ever spoken to a newly elected senator. Work hard, keep your mouth shut, and answer your mail. It wasn't email at that point. He was literally answering his mail. Truman did all three, and he learned more and more about the widespread waste and corruption in America's buildup of what President Roosevelt called the arsenal of democracy. At the time, our country was working to supply England in its desperate battle with Germany. Incensed by what he read, Truman decided to investigate, there it is, the matter for himself. He got in his car and drove around the country alone. He drove some estimated 10,000 miles on the trip, taking two-lane roads as far south as Florida, going through the Midwest and up into Michigan, visiting plants and military installations, taking notes in what he saw with his own eyes. He took no aides, he hired no planes, he visited no golf courses, and he stayed at no first-rate hotels. 
What Truman saw was even worse than the letters that had been written to him described. Contractors were paid cost plus to build plants and warehouses, and so not only did it inflate their cost, but they built things badly. Surplus equipment was left out in the snow to rust, owing to no controls and no accountability. Surplus workers with nothing to do were getting paid to sit around and smoke and play cards. Truman came back to Washington, reported his findings to President Roosevelt, but still no action was taken. So this senator from Missouri made his own report. He walked in front of the Senate reporting what he'd seen with his own eyes on this 10,000-mile road trip. It was a bombshell, and it changed everything. Not only for Truman, for the country as a whole, it was a road trip that truly changed our nation. Harry Truman isn't known today as a senator from Missouri. He's known as one of the greatest presidents of all time. It didn't take Nehemiah nearly as long to ride around Jerusalem and take inventory as it did for President Truman to take his 10,000-mile journey. But he did indeed ride around his city. With Harry Truman-like determination, Nehemiah rode a horse around the ruins of his beloved city at night and alone, and he took notes. And this is what he found. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 11. A courageous soul investigates what's wrong. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts, those are horses, with me except the one that I was riding on. By night I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, ex- examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. It's because of the ruin. So I went up to the valley by the night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because I had yet said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or any officials or any others who would be doing the work. You see, Nehemiah could have made all the different excuses of why he couldn't build Jerusalem. After taking a look, uh, he, he realized, wait a minute, I'm not a Levite. I'm not responsible for this. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a builder. Uh, he was a cupbearer. But just like anyone else who God has called to do a significant task, the feelings of inadequacy give way to the necessity of the moment. And in this moment, Nehemiah would need again 20 seconds of absolute bravery and courage. But we need to remember that you can only start from where you are. You can only begin from where you are. He couldn't wait until some distant day when he had put on the ranks, if you will, and had some additional authority. No, he was going to have to do what he could in that moment with what he had. He's going to have to start with it right now, not with what was over the horizon. And so he needed to open his eyes and look and see and investigate. We need to do the same to read, to learn, to listen, to use the senses that God has given us, the sense of sight, the sense of hearing, the sense of smell, the sense of taste, if you will, the sense of touch. Being aware of what is going on around us, rise up, take courage, and do it. A courageous soul investigates what is wrong when you see the darkness closing in, when you feel injustice getting a hold of the world around you, you had better pay attention to what is going on. 
Rise up, take courage, and do it. Secondly, a courageous soul unites hearts. A courageous soul unites hearts. I think we've told you already, as this book will play out, we'll see here in the story of Nehemiah that in 52 days, the city will rebuild its own walls. In 52 days, they'd already taken 20 years to do much of the other work and it was already falling apart. But in 52 days, with no pay, these volunteers step forward and they get the job done. 52 days, that is actually shorter than the amount of time that we're taking to teach through this sermon series. In 52 days, the city's walls would be rebuilt. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Look around. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sinbalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, Geshem and Arab, when they heard about it, they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start, we will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Nehemiah calls the men around. He says, pay attention now. Look at what's here in front of us. Look at the problem that is before us. I've documented it. I've, I've taken the time to look at the problem that is at hand. The darkness is closing in. We need to rebuild. And then he shares with them, guess what? His personal story to how God already was in motion. Don't miss that, friends. Many times it's our own personal story that it is going to require to get someone else to step forward. They have to believe that God is at work in your life in order for you to compel them to do anything else or move in any way. It is your personal story that people need to hear so much more than someone else's journey. And I have on my shelf in the office, and maybe you do on your bookshelves at home, plenty of stories about how God has worked in other people's lives. But what your people, your friends, your family need to hear is your story. The way that he stepped up in front of the king, used the moment that he had with a moment of bravery and courage, and God worked in that. And guess what they are willing to do? They are willing to step forward as well, even while people are yelling insults at them, saying, you must be rebelling against the king. And what does he do again? He steps forward again. And he says, you will have no place when the walls are put up here. And everyone looks at him and says, oh man, I want to follow that guy. I'm with him. They might be hiding behind him a little bit so that he takes the blows that they come after him. But okay, let's move forward. Ray Steadman is a pastor and an author, and he puts it this way. He says, don't be paralyzed, be organized. Don't be paralyzed, be organized. It's time to move forward. A courageous soul unites hearts. Nehemiah is a courageous soul. He is a great leader, and he is leading as a servant. And as he steps forward and leads, guess what? It unites hearts. Rise up, take courage, and do it. 
You next fill in, a courageous soul starts at home. A courageous soul starts at home. Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses from here. We'll come back to it in a second. This is one of those chapters that you would not want to read the whole chapter publicly because you're going to mess up so many names. So I'm not going to attempt to do that today. So if I mess up your name, if your name happens to be Eliashib or Zephalapha or Malchani, I'm making those up. Those, I think those are there. I apologize for messing your name up this morning. Verse 1. Elisha, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work to rebuild the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated as far as the tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining uh, section, and Zakur, the son of Imri, built next to them. All right, flip forward, go down the bottom of the page, verse 28. I'm jumping, I know there's a lot of verses there. I'm jumping down to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Emer, made repairs opposite his own house. Next to him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made report, uh, repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelmaniah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired the other section. Next to them, Melshalem, son of Be uh, Berechiah, yep, made repairs opposing his living quarters. Next to him, Malkijah, Malkijah Mal, yep. one of the goldsmiths <laughs> made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite of the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. Okay, so there is an entire chapter of names, addresses, and phone numbers. That's what's going on here, okay? And this entire chapter gives, and you can circle it, you go through your Bible, go through and mark it, and you'll see there's, there's 10 or more times that the term house or my house or my home is listed. Because there, in verse 28, he made repairs each in front of his own house. Zadok made repairs opposite his house, next to him. So there's this next to him, and furthermore, and there's this whole effort of saying, starting in your own home, a courageous soul starts in your own home. Courage begins with getting up in the morning and opening God's word and saying, God, what do you have to show me today? And then the courage to say, God, use me today begins in your own home. And when they look at the problem that is there, the problem is massive. The walls needed to be repaired. And in that, all that work that had to be done, Nehemiah says, start with your own house. Deal with what lies right in front of you. A courageous soul starts at home. I think it's fitting that the New Testament writers and much of we read in the New Testament about elders and their leadership in the church and deacons and their servanthood in the church. What is the first question that is asked? How do they lead their home? How do they serve their home? What does their home look like? Because a courageous soul begins at home. Rise up, take courage, and do it. A courageous soul goes out into the darkness. A courageous soul goes out into the darkness. Nobody wants to go out in the darkness, friends. Nobody. You can gear yourself up for it. 
You can plan for it as much as you want, but nobody wants to go out in the dark. My family likes to go camping. We like to go camping in a tent. And occasionally, when you go camping in a tent, there's something out there. <laughs> Woo, yeah. You don't know what it is. And the way that the lights play tricks on you at night, it might be a little kitten that happened to go by. But when the light comes through the tent, it looks like a cougar. We were staying in a campground uh, near Fripp Island, I believe it was, somewhere in South Carolina. And, and so it was like a beach area. It was a, it was a campground at the beach. And this particular campground had a pretty big problem with raccoons getting into people's trash and into their tents and different things like that. And if you've ever been in that situation, listen, so, so what happens is we, we kind of tidying things up, getting things together, and it's dark, and Aaron and I are looking at each other and says, someone needs to take the trash and put it in the dumpster out there in the dark. And I said, I think you should do it. And so then I started because then she told me that was not going to work. <laughs> so I go out to the dumpster. It's in the dark. And you hear things. You think, and you're carrying a bag of trash, which you've been told is what the raccoons want to eat. And they're coming after you. And wouldn't you know it, as I'm walking through across the campground, the raccoon goes across in front of me. I'm holding the bag of trash. So I get over to the dumpster, come up to the dumpster. And I think that the raccoon is behind me. He's chasing me about to jump on my back, that type of thing. So I take the trash and lift up the dumpster to put the trash in. And guess what's in the dumpster looking back at me? I'd like to tell you what happened. Here's what really happened. I got the trash. I got up and I went, ah! And I threw the trash and ran away. Now, we've been warned that in the campground, there's a problem with trash and raccoons getting into the trash. And so make sure that it's in the dumpster because as long as there's trash laying around, the raccoons will keep coming. Well, I had just thrown my trash all over the place. But it wasn't near my tent. I went back to my tent and went to bed. Nobody wants to go out in the darkness. Send me your hateful emails later about going out there. That guy was scary. A courageous soul goes into the darkness. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Sinbalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Anuite, he jumps in as well. He was at his side. He says, well, what are they building? Even a fox could climb up on it and break down the wall of stones. Nehemiah's response, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of builders. You're going to see the names of these two men, Simbalat and Tobiah, Sandy and Toby. They've got a problem. 
but they actually have the muscle. They have an army waiting in Samaria to, to create massive trouble for Nehemiah. So not only is he going out in the darkness and surveying stuff, he is dealing with the darkness of the soul. They want to be rid of him. They don't want these walls to be rebuilt. They don't want any of the things that Nehemiah is after, and they will do whatever it takes to ruin him, to mock him, to ridicule him, to pull out whatever platform of leadership that he has obtained at this point. They are trying to tear it down. But a courageous soul strikes out into the darkness. A courageous soul is still afraid. A courageous soul is still very afraid. But a courageous soul goes out into the darkness. And this is what Nehemiah does. Rise up, take courage, and do it. A courageous soul lastly completes his assigned task. A courageous soul completes his part of the journey, his part of the task. Verse 6, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Look at this unified group of people working with all of their heart. They are diligent. They are going after it. They are doing all that they can to complete the wall. Now, I'm going to use a little bit of an allegory for you. This is not all literal. I want to kind of put that out there at first. But in this passage, we see 10 different gates that they are working at. And I think they can represent or at least remind us of some different things. Of when you are going to go after a complete project, what Nehemiah is leading here, there's some completeness to what he is trying to do to fortify the entire city. And it is a good reminder for us of what it looks like for us to really pursue a complete following after God and completely fulfilling the assigned tasks that we have. So I'm going to move through them really quickly. You can mark them down, write them down if you want. Circle them in your Bible. You will see the word gate 10 different times in this passage of Nehemiah chapter 3. Here we go. First is the sheep gate. It appears in verse 1 and it appears in verse 32. What we have, if you look at the walls of the city, we're actually moving in a counterclockwise direction. He's just going to name all the different gates of the city as he goes around uh, that was clockwise, counterclockwise, as he goes around the city, just to tell you what the different gates are. But I think that they give us some reminders today. The sheep gate, this is the gate which the animals were brought into the city, specifically the animals that were brought into the city for the purpose of sacrificing, sacrificing at the temple. These sacrifices were slain for the sins of the people. The sheep gate was tremendously important because it was a moment of worship, of sacrifice. And we are reminded that we need to sacrifice to complete the task. Secondly, there's the fish gate, Nehemiah 3.3. 3. The merchants used this gate when they brought the fish and different things in. This, this was the way that you come into the city if you were bringing a good that needed to be traded back and forth in the market from the Mediterranean Sea. And this was a key entrance to the city. There's a completeness that we must follow. We understand that we are to live our faith out in the marketplace, that we need to allow people to see and move back and forth to see what Christ does to the way that we behave in the public sector. Thirdly, the old gate. This is verse 6. People are always looking for something new and exciting and shiny. But sometimes what we really need to do is go back to the old ways that we find in Scripture, that work that God has demonstrated again and again. These people of Israel 
<coughs> there in Judah. They have gotten away from, that is why the prophets write, is because they have gotten away from the truths that they know to be of God. They've gotten away from what he has told them. Ezra saying, come back. And Ezra, who is writing this story of Nehemiah, is, is demonstrating, showing this old gate. There's a heritage of faith here that needs to be had. And we need to do the same if we are going to complete our assigned task. Fourthly, there's the valley gate in verse 13. The valley gate is where Nehemiah began his investigation of the ruins. Every Christian needs a valley gate. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is more often in the valley that we will take the time to investigate our hearts and our souls because we are humbled before God. If we are going to completely follow God, then we need to go through the valley gate. The fifth gate, the dung gate, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 14. This gate does not have a beautiful name. Can anyone guess what the dung gate is for? It did perform an important service for the city. Each of us also must get rid of whatever malice, whatever defiles us, because it could be the end of us. It could destroy us. Number six is the fountain gate found in Nehemiah 3.15. The spring that fed the water system was an important source of water for the city. Jesus wants us, what, in, in uh, John chapter 4, to drink continually from his living water. In this present tense of not just drink of it once and you'll be satisfied, but continually be drinking from that water, from the well. That is the fountain gate. Number seven is the water gate. The water gate, a different water gate. But the water gate in chapter 3, verse 26, it's here that Ezra and the priests conducted a great Bible conference in Ezra. And, and this is where he gathers everyone together and explains the scriptures to people. So this water gate reminds us of the word of God, the foundational truth of scriptures in a completely following after God. The horse gate. Number eight is Nehemiah 3, 28. God warned his people not to trust in horses and in chariots. The horse gate reminds us that there's warfare in the Christian life. That was why there was no horses available to Nehemiah. He just had the one uh, mount that he's moving through the city because they had been decimated. So we, we are told that we must trust. And as Christians, we must trust that God is going to be the one who fights our battles. And that's what the horse gate reminds us of. The east gate in Nehemiah 3.29. <coughs> Tradition tells us that this is the gate that Jesus entered the city on Palm Sunday when he comes victorious as the Prince of Peace. This gate reminds us that Christ will return. Christ will come again to his people and we must be ready at all times. And then the tenth gate is the tenth gate of Hamikaphad, I believe is how you say that. It's a Hebrew word that has a military connotation to the mustering or the gathering of troops. If you've ever served in the military, basically every single day there's a muster every morning that says, is everybody here? Is everyone accounted for? What's the work that we have to do? When the Lord returns, he'll gather his people together and review their works. That's what this gate reminds us of. And so in a brief overview, just looking at those gates and looking at what Nehemiah has, when we talk about Nehemiah completing the task of broken walls and broken hearts, do you understand that there is a completeness there to what is going on, what Nehemiah is pursuing? Rise up, take courage, and do it. A courageous soul completes the task, the assigned task before him. 
Now, it would be a mistake for us anywhere in this sermon series to tell you, so leave here today and be more like Nehemiah. Because you see, Nehemiah, and we'll find as we work our way through this book, Nehemiah does rebuild the walls, but the walls crumble again. They do fall. The walls will not stand forever. It leaves us wanting. The Old Testament closes, and there's this wanting and waiting. Why? Because it's not yet complete. And then we open the New Testament, and we see Jesus as the completeness, the fullness, the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus is the completion of the task that God has at hand. He is what God has been working on in rebuilding his people and rebuilding you and me. Rise up, take courage, and do it. Turn very quickly over to the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. This is Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. There's a worship service going on. Jesus is there in attendance and it says he's, this is where he's been brought up. This is the local church that he's a part of and he's been sitting in the seats and for some reason this day, what does he do? He rises up, he takes courage and steps in front of people, turns in the scroll to this specific passage and reads this. Verse 16, he went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. On the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed it to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is what? Circle it, star it, underline, fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus would completely fulfill and continues to completely fulfill the task at hand. What were the things he highlights in that scripture from Isaiah? Bringing good news to the poor. Proclaiming release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and let the oppressed go free. Jesus is declaring the very, very good news that he is the fulfillment of all things. He is the one offering freedom to those who are imprisoned because those are the ones that he loves. And how does Jesus fulfill his earthly ministry? How does he finish his earthly ministry? On the cross, in John chapter 19, verse 30, he finishes with these words, it is finished. The task is fully complete. Now today, we call this Freedom Sunday. We do it once a year. And we try to put a special focus on those who are not free. So today, churches all around the country, all around the world, are dedicating their services to ending slavery around the world. This is where you take what you've been talking about, see in Scripture, and apply it in a very real and tangible way. As we talk about slavery, some of you are saying, wow, I can't believe this even exists anymore. But there are more people held in slavery today, in this very moment, than have ever been in all of human history. 
Over 45 million people are held in slavery today according to the Global Slavery Index. One in four of those slaves is a child. Sex trafficking, 4.2 million and 11.6 million people held in forced commercial sexual exploitation according to the International Labor Organization today. Human trafficking generates $150 billion a year, two-thirds from commercial sexual exploitation, according to the International Labor Organization. A child in India goes missing every eight minutes, and less than half of them are ever found again. Injustice, globally, four billion people live outside of the protection of any law, according to the United Nations. So when we talk about this issue of slavery, this is a staggering issue, a global epidemic, a modern-day bonded labor slavery. The question is today, what is the church? What are the people of God? What are we supposed to do about it? And in many ways, as I've been painting the picture of all the different facets, ten different gates that are there, we also need to rise up, take courage, and do it. Understand, it's going to have to start at home. There are some things that are happening here in Western New York when it comes to many of these issues. But the reason why we partner with International Justice Mission is because uh, you can go back to the table after the service and you can get a card from almost every country around the world that is affected by this and the way that they are serving. And they're multifaceted. It is much more than 10 ways that they are trying to prepare gates to protect the city, this virtual city that we're discussing. But it's a very big deal to get our hearts and our minds and our heads around such a big problem. So we've found, and I believe this to be true, that single stories, specific stories are what challenge us and motivate us. As I said before, Nehemiah's personal story is what motivates us to action. And so as a closing for my message this morning, we're gonna show a video that very personally, very specifically tells you one story in the way that our response is to that one story. And in that way, we pray that that is for you the connecting point that says, okay, what is my responsibility? How do I engage? How do I solve this problem of rebuilding all of the walls? It's probably going to be with one story, with one connection. Rise up, take courage, and do it.